Hello and welcome to The Film File, episode 97 of your favourite film podcast starring us. The film show for film geeks by film geeks. Roll music, put a smile on your face. Hello and welcome, I'm Lee Ford. And I'm Andy Beacon. And this is, of course, The Film File, your favourite film podcast starring us. Well, we certainly hope so. Hope you're well. We're good, I think, over this end. You've got a bit of a cough, which might um, work <laughs> its way I'm, into this episode. I'm hoping it's not the vid. Um, oh, yeah, I'm yeah, to the vid crossed. now. Me, me and the vid have been so close together, um, but I've not actually caught on to it. You know, I'm just like calling mortal, it the vid now. Mortal enemies circling <laughs> each other. Yeah, I've woken up this morning with a bit of a cough. Um, I'm trying to keep it under control, but yeah, I will edit out any coughing fits that I have so the, <laughs> the, the listeners at home don't have to listen to it. This is the advantage. I mean, I've said before about the advantage of this recording online that we've been forced into through lockdown one, that now both of our audio tracks are completely separate. So whenever, like, you know, Lee accidentally sneezes at a high-pitched volume, which um, <laughs> happened, about three episodes, happened about three episodes ago, or I go off on a on a big tangential rant while Lee's halfway through saying Which something. happens most episodes. I could, <laughs> I could remove things to make it a bit more clearer. Aside from that, this week I've been I've been underwhelmed by the TV offerings. I've not had time. I've got a, a lot of stuff outside of my usual commitments, which have which have taken up most of my attention this week. Uh, sadly, yeah. uh, also my other half, she's got this cough that you've got, and I had my booster couple of days ago and so i've had the two previous shots clearly yeah not a thing not an achy arm not felt unwell had the booster boy i thought i'd got covid again it, it, it felt that badly i'm just coming round now but uh yesterday for instance couldn't couldn't have done this uh i just Knocker. kept falling asleep just felt awful but no it, it was it was a surprise i've read about so many people and heard so many people who've had their their shots and it's made them unwell but I escaped both times, but the booster was uh, was a real knockout. It was a kicker, and it was interesting to see how busy it was as well. People coming in for their their boosters. There's a, there's a real sense out there of um, things not going well right now, as far as the yeah. whole COVID situation is. And uh, we booked to go away over New Year. We're thinking of going to uh, uh, to Berlin, and we've been reading about Austria. Uh, I'm reading about some of the European countries which are in increasing their, their their COVID restrictions again. And it is a bit of a worry whether we'll make it or not at this stage. Just don't know. But we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, well, uh, our, our only holiday is a, a caravan holiday to Wales uh, in the spring bank holiday next year. Hopefully, Wales will let English people in at that point in time. <laughs> Otherwise, there'll be pitchforks at the border again and uh, we'll be getting sent home. Uh, but yeah, see, I mean, you remember on last week's show that I was talking about what's coming up over the next week and those yeah. two TV shows that I had my eye on, Wheel of Time and Cowboy Bebop. Yes, and, yeah, you were looking forward to both of them. Wheel of Time, I've watched the first episode and I'm not that bothered with watching any more. It just felt very generic. Underwhelmed? Very underwhelming. Right. Um, it, 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 looks, it looks great, but it just looks like Game of Thrones. Doesn't it's appeal, got, to be honest. It's got a great cast. But they all seem to be just playing template characters, and right. it just felt, it just felt weak. And Cowboy Bebop looks stylish, but it only served to highlight to me why anime doesn't work as live action because it's trying desperately to emulate the source material. But I don't know it to be honest. It shows how stilted anime dialogue can be because it feels like an anime kind of dialogue. You accept a certain level of cheapness when it comes to an anim animation. You accept dialogue being exposition or forced narrative. When it comes to seeing people, real people, sounding off such awful lines of dialogue, it makes it really, really, I don't know, fake and false. I might give this a bit of a shot because I've read some people say that by episode three, it picks up a bit. Right. And I do quite like the stylings. I just feel that it's it should have adapted the material but made it work in the new medium rather than trying to make a live-action anime. That's where the problem is. It's tried to make a live-action anime. I've done a bit of a catch-up with, with some stuff that's been outstanding TV-wise. And, and we were chatting about this offline, but we should have had it online. I got to see uh, last night in Soho, and ultimately, boy, uh, I'm, uh, we're 
we're going to really, really disagree. Because not often you and I disagree, but it just didn't land for me. And I won't go into the details why, because we, we've had a bit of a chat about it. But it, 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 it didn't land. I mean, I thought it was great filmmaking. And I'd have been surprised if it hadn't been. Um, it looks fantastic. It's got a, a great feel to it. Love the soundtrack, but the the plot just just didn't work for me. I, I, I was too busy being distracted by how poor the plot was. Um, but what I was impressed w- was was the cast. I thought the cast were fantastic, even though Terrence Stamp was severely underused. But uh, um, probably my second most disappointed Edgar Wright movie. Oh, what's your first? Um, the World's End one. Oh, see, I I remember watching World's End and not being impressed with it. But it's one of those films that I've now watched it about four times, and each time I watch it, I get something more from it. It's a grower. I think the problem was that it had a lot to live up to being the yes. final part of the Cornetto trilogy. I've not gone back to it, you see. I've with you not 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 liking it. last night in Soho. I'm sorry, but uh, well, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the final episode of the Film File. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, next week we're just going to be having something called File Film. <laughs> we'll do our own individual shows. Yeah, we'll, we're going to fracture off. We were talking about the Beatles last week. This is our Beatles fracturing moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's all documented. It'll be one of those things where you get bands, and I, you know, the the radio show that I, I do, the music one, there was a. Uh, there was an incident and I was trying to work out how many bands had, were, had gone out under the title of that band, even though <laughs> they only consisted of one member each. There was sort of like four variations of the same band. That'll be us. It'll be like four different. Scott will go and do one and uh, it'll be like Film File UK. Film File, the the uh, the Andy Meakin Film File, the Lee Ford Film File. <laughs> At- on the subject of TV again, uh, you know, there has been some highlights over the past few weeks and uh, I've Dexter New Blood started a couple of weeks ago. Oh, has it started? I mean, it's been it's been hanging around the um, uh, the stratosphere for so long. I thought it had been and gone. I, I approached it with trepidation because those last couple of seasons of Dexter were a huge disappointment. So I'd heard. I'd never, I've never followed the series. But I'm well and truly in. It's up to the th- episode three now and I'm well and truly on board. This. The first episode was a slow burner. There was no voiceover of him talking, to, like his inner monologue going on until the last 10 minutes. And that's when it became Dexter. And it all kind of fits together and it's growing beautifully. Uh, well worth checking out. I'm hoping that if it continues in this vein and pays off well, that they will commission another season because those last few seasons were just a mess. Someone heard. Is the, this is what I've kind of needed something to bring it, restore it back to its former glory. Oh, and also, we mentioned last week that Dr. Sleep had dropped on Amazon. Have you noticed the director's cut has dropped on Amazon as well? No, I watched, I did watch it a few, not that long ago. I was going to say a few weeks ago, but I think it's more likely to be a couple of months ago. I, I've got a soft spot for it. Um, oh, I how much it. added in is a director's cut? How much does it give it? There's approximately an extra, just under 30 minutes extra. Because it's a long old film. It's small touches, like slight extensions to most scenes, and then a few key additional moments. And I watched it last night and... For me, it made me immerse myself into it a lot more, having that complete one. And it's also structured now to into chapters. So it, right. like each chapter has a title card and it feels like it, it kind of feels like the book as a film. It's the one film adaptation which I think is superior to the book. Yeah. I mean, it's not the classic Stephen King, but it, it, it is actually superior to the book. Was that final act uh, where it basically you know, flips across to Kubrick's Shining, mm. uh, like to do the resolution with the hotel that actually gives it a better finale than what the yeah. book did. This feels like a, a sequel to The Shining, in which the book felt like a connection to The Shining, a continuation yeah. of his story as opposed to a sequel to The Shining. And uh, as I say, I think, the, I think the film's actually superior. One of those odd cases where you can look at the movie and go, there were better choices on this. But it's definitely the highlight of my viewing schedule this week, watching that director's cut last night. Oh, three hours just flew by. Excellent. Um, <laughs> I thought you were going I'll let you finish chewing. I'll <laughs> let you finish chewing. <laughs> Lee, at this point in time, is currently having a snack and making me feel hungry by doing so. <laughs> so that's a little bit of insight into Auntie and I's viewing habits over the last week. Um, let's have a look what's in today's show. Well, of course. On this week's show, we'll be doing a deep dive on the build-up to Thanksgiving. Hello, Utah. Hi, Utah. (laughs) 
we'll be doing a deep dive into planes, trains and automobiles. Andy will be reviewing Ghostbusters Afterlife, Tick Tick Boom and Spencer. That's quite a wide array of films. Yeah, blimey, you couldn't put those into (laughs) one category, Um, apart from being just a film geek. And, of course, we'll be giving you our neat things, but before any of that, we have the sequence, the chapter, the legend, that is, the news. So, as ever, we'll be starting out with the box office. Andy, what's the box office figures like this week? And where's that left us with Eternals? So, at the box office this weekend, Ghostbusters Afterlife opened to $44 million in the US after being predicted for the $27 to $35 million range, showing that there's definitely some afterlife left in this franchise yet. And the 2016 film clearly didn't put people off. Um, with an additional $16 million taken internationally, that means it's already garnered $60 million. US dollars. With a modest 75 million budget, that's well on target to profit. And in the UK, it was also the top film with just over £4 million worth of takings, which is just under $6 million. Eternals held on to second place this week in the US, taking another 11 million. This means after just three weeks, it's made 135 million in the US and 200 million elsewhere for a 335 to 336 million total. In the UK, it also held second place, taking the total to date to just under £13 million, which is $17 million. Clifford, the big red dog, bounded into third place with £8.1 million. Not a bad haul, given that it's also available on the streaming services for subscription charges. Uh, whilst King Richard only scraped a paltry £5.7 million. King Richard also barely scraped just over £500,000 in the UK equivalent to 766 US dollars. The blockbuster competition that it's up against is clearly too strong for such a film. Dune held on to fifth place in the US, which takes its combined worldwide total to 367 million to date. It held fourth place in the UK. We don't have Clifford in the way. Now having taken a total of just over 20 million pounds or 27 million dollars for the UK audience. Fantastic figures from that film. And No Time to Die is slowing down significantly now as it's available on streaming services for premium rental. So it's out there for home watching. Although we are still getting a decent holdover in the UK where it remained in third place. But it does look that it's unlikely to make that targeted 800 million that we've discussed in previous weeks at the box office. Hopefully it will recoup lost revenue via home rental. But that's the box office roundup for this week. So that's box office. Um, Andy, give us the news. Right. Uh, let's start with uh, my favourite director of all time. And that is Wes Anderson. Because we have Wes Anderson news. Yes, he's wasting no time in making more films. He's recently finished filming on his next film that we've been getting excited about, even though we know nothing about. Is that the Spanish project? Yeah, which we know it's titled Asteroid City. And we know that it's got Tom Hanks and Margot Robbie joining the usual roster of names who usually frequent his whimsical worlds. It appears, however, that he's also, right at this point in time, literally right now, as I'm sat sat talking, prepping his next film to start shooting early next year. Uh, Robert Yeoman, who's one of his frequent cinematographers, has confirmed this news. As with Asteroid City, we have no idea what it's going to be about. And we don't know when it's going to be coming out. And we don't know who's going to be in it. But rest assured, as all this news drops in the coming weeks, I will be getting giddy with excitement once more for something that I know nothing about. <laughs> Asteroid City is due for release next year in 2022. So it's speculation says that the new one will be aiming for 2023. Either that, or we're going to get two films next year. And that will be an amazing year. Two Wes Anderson films. You'll be in Anderson heaven. I'm just, I'm just giddy with excitement over the whole thing. <laughs> Wes Anderson can do no wrong. I would love him to do a horror film. I'd love to see a Wes Anderson horror film. Just putting that out there. Wes, if you're listening, I want you to do a horror we film. Know he does. I need to see what you'd do. <laughs> so, you know, my other interest other than, um, other than film is music. Jonah Hill, and this is casting Ooh. that I would never, ever have seen, mm. is to play the Grateful Dead frontman Jerry Garcia from a film with Martin Scorsese. Yeah, I, was, I, I caught that one. And same as you, it's one of them that's like, Jonah Hill, oh, wouldn't have thought it, but I can really see it. Scorsese's no stranger to biopics and definitely music ones to boot. And with his plans to make a film about The Grateful Dead with Jonah Hill as Jerry Garcia, with Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski 
penning the script. Um, Hill is also going to be producing alongside Rick Yorn. And the band and group's management are fully participating within the film, which will be made for my favourite quality streaming service of the year, Apple TV. Phew, I thought you were going to go Sky Movies. <laughs> oh, oh, man. The contrast of difference between Sky Movies and Apple Plus. For, like, it's, it's just like <laughs> they're the both ends of the scale, aren't they? And you just like Netflix is somewhere in between. Scorsese's previously executive produced the 2017 documentary Long Strange Trip about the band. So... I'm quite enthused for this. Grateful Dead get a lot of um, a lot of sneering, like from some elements of society who clearly haven't listened to any Dead tracks. They just go by what people expect yeah, yeah. of the Grateful Dead. The Grateful Dead are a fantastic band, and Jerry Garcia is a personality. Jonah Hill is, like you say, wouldn't have seen it, but yeah, that's that's pretty good casting. That's a good choice. Uh, what else have we got? Uh, well, on the subject of music, uh, documentaries, and biopics, Brett Morgan, who brought us films such as Kurt Cobain montage of Heck. And Bob Evans' Kid Stays in the Picture. Which is one of my favourite books about Hollywood, by the way. The Kid Stays in the Picture is a fantastic book. And if you ever can ever track down, and it's hard to do, the talking book version read by Bob Evans, it's an absolute 12 hours out of your life, which is a, a pure joy. Ooh, I shall track that down. He's reported to be adding the final touches to a David Bowie project, which is described as neither documentary nor biography, but an immersive cinematic experience. He's mm-hmm. been... He's been ploughing through thousands of hours of rare footage, much of it previously unseen, and the project is eyeing an IMAX release. Bowie's longtime producer, Tony Visconti, is going to serve as music producer on the film, and the sound team who worked on the Oscar-winning Bohemian Rhapsody will mix and design the project, and the film has the full backing and support of the Bowie estate. Interesting to see exactly what they mean by an immersive cinematic experience. It sounds like it's going to have like concert-esque kind of approach, but hopefully delving into that surreality that Bowie brought to all of his projects as well. Well, to be honest, you couldn't really, or you shouldn't, should I say, rather than couldn't, do a very a straight Bowie a biopic. No. it's it, it doesn't fit in. It's not part of, of what Bowie was about. As a huge Bowie fan, uh, having seen, um, what was it? Was it Stardust? or I can't remember the title that came out earlier this year, which wasn't as bad as, as people said it was going to be. It's it's not the forum to tell a straight, straight Bowie story. You need it to be something more, something eclectic like the man himself. It needs to be an experience. So keep an eye out for that. If it's going to be engineered for IMAX, hopefully it's not going to just be one of those limited only in IMAX releases, and hopefully it will get standard release as well. And I think there'll definitely be a, some kind of a market out there. We see it at our cinema whenever there's anything music-related showing. We pack the screens. There's mm, always a market for them. And someone like Bowie is... Ev- everyone of every era has something that they can love about Bowie because I his totally music spanned across decades. And... I, th- I think it'll be one of those that will get like young and old all in one screen. Keep an eye out for that one. Let's move on to Marvel because there's a lot of Marvel related news this week. Oh, that's interesting. And I wasn't sure what Marvel related stuff we we're going to get this week. So we'll start with the bit of the negative is that Black Panther's filming hiatus that we previously reported has now officially begun. Production's not going to recommence until early next year. This stoppage is due to the injury that Letitia Wright suffered in August which has taken longer than expected to heal up. It included a critically fractured shoulder and side effects of concussion. Uh, when production recommences in January, scenes which involve Wright's character, Shuri, will be the focus, along with the usual pickups and reshoots. But the only worry right now is that there's very tight restrictions on vaccination passes in place, which may restrict Wright from returning back to filming, because she has vocally spoken about her anti-vax concerns and has not had the vaccine herself. It is hoped and expected that the hiatus time will allow time for all the complications to be worked out so that filming can just recommence. But as we get closer to January, we might be finding that either A, there's going to be serious reshoots without her, or B, they will have to delay the film even further. And we still know very little about the plot other than the the inclusion of Namor. That's pretty much all, all there is. It's interesting how much secrecy they can keep around the Marvel studios mm. in this day and age. Uh, Delroy Lindo has joined Blade. That was my big news story for this week, and you beat me to it. <laughs> He's got a star alongside Marishala Ali in the MCU film. Blade, for those who don't know and have lived under a rock for decades, is a human-vampire hybrid who now hunts vampires and other creatures of darkness. And our first introduction to the new take on the character came via a voice at the end of Eternals. Blade was previously portrayed on screen by Wesley Snipes, who, as we've said previously, has been very gracious in his passing over of the torch. 
you could argue that Blade, the first film from the late 90s, was the start of the modern Marvel era. It was what pushed the Marvel films in a new direction. Absolutely. Um, and, and when I think when you go back to the start of, of when people started taking comic book movies uh, and taking them seriously, definitely with it within the Marvel uh, um, Marvel fold. Yeah. And Blade was a starting point for it. Are you going to mention Jane Campion as part of your Marvel news? Uh, I've not got Jane Campion in part of my one. Oh, right. Well, she has grown the ever eclectic list of directors who, who can't understand why people go and see Marvel movies or superhero movies. A particular Marvel seems to be the one that, that uh, gets tarred and feathered for every comic book movie. And yeah. I'm surprised I didn't get a call from the uh, um, from the BBC to discuss this. Uh, and I think I probably would have got bored about halfway through. But yes, James Campion has joined joined the list of directors who just don't see a point to them. Jane Campion is an eclectic and amazing film director, but she doesn't speak for all of us, does she? And it seems that though, <laughs> that seems to be the point when anybody brings it up, whether it's she started on that conversation, or as we've said before, a journalist starts that conversation, but clearly she's not into her superhero movies. Interesting enough, she's just worked with Benedict Cumberbatch on Power of the Dog. Again, let's just get back to this whole thing of journalists stop asking directors what they think of Marvel films. For a start, if you're going to go down that topic, stop referring it to it as Marvel films and look at the whole entertainment genre. What are they for? They're for entertainment. Marvel films, DC films, Jurassic World, it's all entertainment. And that's what cinema is about. Cinema is about telling stories, but it's also about entertaining. Agreed. There's, not, there's, there's nothing deep to dig into on the Marvel franchise. If you're a huge fan of the comics, yes, you can dig further and deep into it. But in general, the films are entertainment, they're escapism, that's their purpose. So any directors out there who are listening to this podcast who get asked this in a future one, just say, listen to the film file, they'll tell you exactly what Marvel films are about. <laughs> Have we got any more Marvel news for us, Andy? Because I've got some comic book news. Scarlett Johansson's lawsuit against Disney was settled a while back, and the star has said that she thinks the challenge was ultimately positive for the industry at large, adding that she has had great times working with Disney and Marvel and looks forward to continuing to do so. Now, we know that Johansson is already working on Tower of Terror for Disney, but Feige has revealed that she's teaming up with Marvel Studios for a non-Black Widow top-secret project as a producer. Let the speculation begin. Mm. Well, I saw this. I didn't see that she was coming in as a producer. The, the, the story that I read was that she was returning, and the speculation was, was she playing a new character? But I thought... I didn't. I didn't see see the realms of being a producer. I thought it might be her directorial debut for Marvel. Mm. We'll have to wait and see. It's going to be interesting to see where, what her involvement ends up being. Elsewhere, Michael Keaton has revealed that he shot some more scenes over the past week as Vulture, but didn't reveal for what film. Maybe it's pickups for Morbius. Maybe it's last minute additions for Spider Man No Way Home. Very unlikely. Seems though that's apparently in the can at two hours thirty nine. And it's tracking really well, by the way. Yes. It is indeed. Possibly some scenes for Doctor Strange. I'll stop speculating there because we could throw out everything. It could be for TV. <laughs> it could be for anything. We don't know at this point in time. And on the subject of No Way Home, the trailer landed this week and it shook the internet. We got the confirmed glimpses of Goblin, Sandman, Lizard, Electro, with Jamie Foxx playing a more comic style version and not the blue screened freak of Amazing Spider-Man 2, as well as more shots of Doc Ock. Careful internet scrutinizers with far too much time on their hands than they should have. How okay, do they do me. It? Um, <laughs> it was me. Where'd they find the time? Uh, went, went through frame by frame and spotted that there appears to be two different goblins in the trailer one with the mask and one who appears to be maskless but with a purple scarf. Is this the Harry Osborne goblin? Who mm -hmm. knows? Also, a closing shot of Spidey leaping to battle against seemingly three villains Sandman, Electro, and Lizard looked quite wrong the framing suggested more was going on the lizard appeared to be fighting with thin air and electro sh should have gone to spec savers because he's he's heading up upwards while um, spider-man's going downwards suggesting that a few elements have been removed from the image two more combatants maybe two other spider-man the suggestion obviously and all the fans are speculating the other two spideys i would still love it if this is further misdirection and the two elements removed from that scene are harry goblin and doc strange <laughs> mm. But it, it's it's a. I mean, have you seen the trailer? I, I did. Yeah, I, I need to watch it again based on what you've just said. Actually, Andy, not frame by frame, clearly, because I, <laughs> I have so much to do today. But um, I, I will watch it again. I, I kind of glanced at it. I'm trying not to, in all honesty, I'm trying not to to watch it because I, I, 
I want to come into it as fresh as, as, as possible. I know they'll be misdirected and I know they won't give the movie away, but I'm just, I'd just rather wait and not get involved in the sort of the pantomime of who's in it and who isn't he. It's behind you. No, it isn't. I, I, I'm kind of just looking forward to seeing the movie. It does look very epic. I'll give it that. Yeah, I mean, and it's going to have the runtime to deal with it. Yeah. Um, Tom Holland, meanwhile, has been causing speculation as to whether this is going to be his final outing as Spidey. In his words, maybe it's time for me to move on. Maybe what's best for Spider-Man is that they do a Miles Morales film. I have to take Peter Parker into account as well because he's an important part of my life. If I'm playing Spider-Man after I'm 30, I've done something wrong. Now, Amy Pascal... A producer is pretty sure that he's going to stick around and she has no plans to make more films without Holland involved. But Holland did also add, I might start shooting the crowded room and go, you know what? This is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Or I might do Spider-Man four, five and six, finish when I'm 32 and never make another. I'm not sure what I want to do. So basically he's just putting the cap on the, on the pigeons. <laughs> he is known for, for voicing his opinion. And, and, and we have seen previously, uh, fan speculation, run wild over what he said or has revealed. Just speculate a way out there. Uh, we, we'll report on what actually gets reported. You just speculate. You just enjoy the speculation. <laughs> so I've got some comic book news if we're done with Marvel. Yep. What have you got? Brian Helgeland is to write an updated Book Rogers TV adaptation. There's been talk for a long time, and we've talked about it on the show, that there were going to be a Book Rogers movie. Anyway, it now seems to be a TV adaptation. And the Helgelander, you will know, has been in the industry for ages. Stuff you're going to think about is legend. He wrote the original draft of Die Hard 3, the Spencer film for Netflix. So it's speculating now, will it land on Netflix? How how could you not mention him for A Knight's Tale? Oof. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Knight's Tale, which is... What um, a cracking film. <laughs> I, I caught again quite recently. And boy, it's, it's still a good... And of course, LA Confidential, I should have mentioned that. Uh, so according to The Wrap, there was an announcement last year that uh, Why the Last Man's Brian K. Vaughan was involved and had the job of, of producing. And according to uh, sources, executive producer George Clooney personally called Hegeland to ask if he'd be interested, to which, the, of course, the latter has now accepted. So it looks like it's going to be a Book Rogers TV series. All I can say to that is biddy, biddy, biddy. <laughs> oh, Book Rogers takes back memories being excited about the idea of bringing a book rogers back to the present day there's so much you can do with it there's still yeah. mountains of stuff because we're not tied into you know it's, it's one of those where we, we can chop and change as we like because there's so many different yeah. variations of the origin of book rogers there's the one in the serial the books the comics the tv series i think you can go anywhere but i still think it's an exciting exciting series to explore sticking with sci-fi and you know you, you said speculated that it might be for netflix so let's kind of stick with netflix star trek discovery which was due to air this weekend uh, oh, that yeah. we were so excited about last week has been pulled from netflix now it's funny enough because when we were talking before the show you we were talking about stuff that we were we've been watching i was going to say to you have you started on star trek discovery and uh I'm glad I didn't because now that's come as a surprise, but that sounds disappointing. Three days before it was due to the new season was due to launch, Paramount decided that they were pulling it from Netflix, who have been a partner on it since day one. Netflix footed much of the cost of the show for the past three seasons, I did not helping that. build the international audience, and 60% of the audience is from outside America. But they've uh, now cancelled the deal, and all seasons, all the seasons, have been pulled from the service three days before the fourth season was due to start. Also that Paramount can force their Paramount Plus streaming service on people as it rolls out internationally next year. Now, you and I have talked about this extensively. What we have deduced is, is there room in the marketplace for another streaming service? And my instinct says no. Apparently, for people who subscribe to Sky Q, they will get it as part of the movie package. But it's not being confirmed as to whether people like myself who use Now TV will get it as part of that package or whether they have to pay an uplift. And if you want to buy it separately, you'll have to pay a separate monthly cost. It's one too many subscriptions. And let's be honest, am I going to take out a subscription for what is effectively just one show? Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. What, what makes it even more interesting with this one is that even locations outside the US that already have Paramount Plus won't get this new season of Discovery until early next year. So they've stopped their day and date. What The whole point of these streaming services being internationally rolled out is that if something lands on it, it lands on it internationally. Yeah. So on their own service, they're putting a delay in of up to three months. Madness, I tell you. Madness. Abs it's crazy. 
I genuinely think that Paramount haven't heard the word piracy ever get mentioned <laughs> because once this rolls out next year and the UK audience can snap it up, no one's going to be subscribing for Discovery because all the fans will have already found some way of watching it. I don't condone such ways of watching it, but I don't condone having to wait up to five or six months for something that you've pulled from us three days before it was due to yeah. land. Disgraceful. That's my rant of the day. No, no, and I'm with you on that one. Uh, it's uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a poor, poor deal, and unfortunately, the fans are the ones who are, are going to take the brunt of it. International fans, and I think a little bit like you, they'll be so unhappy with it that, uh, as you said, if they can find other ways to watch it, then you know, you know what fans are like. They'll do it. They'll find some other ways yeah. to watch it. Dirty pool, old boy. Dirty pool. Very dirty pool. Uh, Hulu's new feature, Mother slash Android, starring Chloe Grace Moretz and Algie Smith, directed by Batman scribe Matson Tomlin, has revealed its first trailer. Moretz and Smith play a young couple expecting a child who are on the run to escape their country, which is in the grips of a war with artificial intelligence. What's that for? What's, what's the service for for that? Hulu. Hulu, so we'll get it on uh, Disney Plus at some point. Yeah, to get to their destination, they must pass the fortress at the centre of the Android uprising. It arrives on Hulu on December the 17th, so fingers crossed Disney Plus will get it that same week, if not just after the new year. I watched the trailer for it, and it looks quite intriguing. Uh, Chloe Grace Moretz, who I've spoken in the past, saying like I, I wasn't sold on her as an actress. She started coming into her own over the past year or so with a couple of smaller projects, including... The film itself isn't very good. The Shadows in the Clouds. She's great in it. But she is marvellous. Yeah. And looking at the trailer for this, she's really matured as an actress. I'm looking forward to this one. It looks right up my avenue. And, you know, anything which has androids versus humans always tickles my fancy. It's it's your your, your ambition to go out in life, in, isn't it? Be fighting an android. It is. I want, to, I, want to get, I want to get killed by an android. <laughs> See what we can do. Rather than a phone, somebody throwing a phone at your head. <laughs> not the same thing. A couple of nostalgic reboots uh, to round off the news. First of all, the 1992 Steven Seagal classic Under Siege is getting a reboot. And for those listening at home, I, uh, I had to put like little um, quotation marks with my fingers when I said classic. Timo <laughs> Tianto, who gave us The Night Comes For Us, is directing with Umar Alim, who gave us Kate, writing the new take for HBO Max. The original film saw Steven Seagal as Casey Ryback, an ex-Navy SEAL turned cook, who ends up trying to stop a group of terrorists from taking control of a US battleship and then had a sequel on a train. You know what? It wasn't that bad. The, the only it was uh, a diehard formula. Yeah, it, it wasn't out of all the diehard formulas. The first film wasn't that bad. The story was was okay. The 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 gaping hole in of air that was Steven Seagal <laughs> wasn't that bad. It was probably at his most charismatic. It's it's right for a, for a remake. It's not it's not the classic. It's not like remaking Die Hard itself. This this they could get away yeah. with this one quite well. Uh, Tia Hanto is currently attached to direct the Train to Busan remake with James Wan producing. The Train to Busan remake is currently being titled Train to New York because if it's moving to America, a train to Busan would be a hell of a train. Yeah, it's going to be like <laughs> Snowpiercer. And uh, finally, Mel Gibson is going to direct the fifth Lethal Weapon film for Warner Brothers Pictures. I saw that. I'm still not sure whether that will ever happen, but go on, what were we going to say? Well, this is a long in-development film that appeared to be off the, off the cards after Richard Donner sadly passed away in July this year. We, we spoke earlier this year, before Donner passed away, how Donner had said that he'd love to do one last film and he'd been working on it for quite a while. Donner's wife and production partner, Lauren Shula Donner, campaigned to get Gibson to bring this fifth film to life. Gibson said, Richard was developing the screenplay and he got pretty far along with it. And he said to me one day, listen, kid, if I kick the bucket, you'll do it. And I said, shut up. He did indeed pass away, but he did ask me to do it. And at the time, I didn't say anything. He said it to his wife and to the studio and the producer. So I will be directing the fifth one. Now, I'm torn on this one because... Yeah, me too. The, the, the we, we spoke about the franchise as a deep dive ages ago, ages ago now. And we said that like the first two still hold up. The third one is a bit wonky and the fourth one was a mess. Do we need a fifth one? Probably not. Best to just leave it there. I'm not sold that there's a reason to go back to those characters, but I'd be interested to see what can be done with it. And Mel Gibson, yeah, despite his public personality, despite his behaviour offset, is a pretty solid director. Yes, yeah, there's nothing to, to complain about about the work that he's done. So it's in capable hands. It's a project that comes from the right source. It comes from like the creator of 
the Lethal Weapon series, it might be worth watching. But it, it is a curiosity. It's one of them that maybe we don't need it, but you don't always get what you need, but you sometimes need what you get. Which I think was a Rolling Stones track. There have <laughs> been a couple of uh, trailer drops this week. Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley's got a new trailer. Um, the first one didn't sell me. I've not seen the the new one yet. Just didn't land for me. I was more confused than I was intrigued, which, okay, it's a trailer. What more can you, can you ask for? Lily James and Sebastian Stan are Pam and Tommy in the first trailer for the limited series, which I think is a Hulu drop. The trailer for The Expanse's sixth and final season, which just reminds me that I have basically three seasons to catch up with. <laughs> I have basically five seasons to catch up with. It's a it's great series. <laughs> I just, the, the longer it goes on, the harder and harder it is for me to catch up. The first two seasons were fantastic. And I just, for some reason, I just find it very difficult to make that move onto the third. Uh, Jeff Bezos's favorite TV series. And that's why he saved it and, and moved it to Amazon when it got cancelled. So, Andy, if you've got a, a big window, which if you do get COVID, catch up with the, I'll, uh, the expanse. I'll have a big 10-day window. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the news. You're listening to The Film File with me, Lee Ford. And me, Andy Beacon. If you're enjoying the show and this is your, well, your first encounter, then why don't you head over to your favorite podcast platform, check out the film file, hit the subscribe button and hit the like button and then tell a friend who will tell a friend who will tell a friend. And eventually you'll have a lot of friends who listen to the film file. <laughs> if you want to know more about the film file, you can do so by following us over at Twitter at Filmfile UK. Find us on Instagram, Filmfile UK. Or you can email us with questions, suggestions, fan theories. Uh, start speculating on those Marvel users that we gave earlier. Anything that you want to email us with, including if you get the emails to us in time, for our 100th episode, we want to try to look at films that you love. So send us a list of five films that you love or any recommendations for deep dives for 2022. You've got three weeks, folks. Three weeks. Podcast at filmfile.uk. I will, I will reply personally to every email, except for the junk email that I've been getting in the inbox recently. <laughs> what are they trying to sell you? Subscriber bases. All oh, right. It's, it's them like, why don't, you, it, why don't you improve your reach? Pay us £100,000 and we will get... I don't care. <laughs> for £100,000, we go around to people's houses, knock on the doors and invite people ourselves. If I had a hundred, yeah, if I had a hundred thousand pounds to pay like some company to find subscribers, I'd use it to find subscribers myself. Yes, <laughs> literally, we stood outside cinemas giving away film file merchandising. I'd get a boombox with a like a, a cassette recording of it and hold it up in the air like an eighties montage. I'm into <laughs> that. I'll be with you for that one. This week on the film file, as you know, we always do a deep dive, and this week in time for American Thanksgiving, we've got the 1987 comedy written and produced and directed by the late great john hughes stars steve martin and john candy it's good-hearted it'll make you cry and it'll make you laugh and it is planes trains and automobiles <laughs> First you delay me, then you bump me. I can't wait to see what happens next. Oh. I'm going home for Thanksgiving. I can help get you home. Next day! I've got a family waiting for me. Here we go. I have uh, diners. Pizza and a uh, gasoline car. Have mercy. I've been wearing the same underwear since Tuesday. I can vouch for that. So going back to 1987 and the late 80s in particular, John Hughes was on a roll. The top of his game. He's the man who scripted Home Alone. He gave you Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He was one of the leading comedy writers in the US at that particular time. And he had that thing that he brought to all of his projects, some which were better than others, some which were just okay. But boy, did the guy know how to write heart. And this is a film that is full of heart. Starring Steve Martin as Neil Page, a high-strung marketing executive, 
and the late great John Candy as Del Griffith, a good-hearted but annoying shower curtain ring salesman. They share a three-day adventure and odyssey, trying to get Neil home to Chicago in time for Thanksgiving with his family. It's one of those films that the time that you watch it, it will mean something to you the first time you watch it. And then subsequently, it will take you back to a time. It is one of those films for me, which is absolutely, absolutely timeless. Yes, it has a 1980s setting and there are aspects of it, like the use of mobile phones, aren't a part of the plot and could have helped it tremendously. But it's just the heart of this movie that is absolutely, absolutely timeless. It still makes me laugh, even though I've seen the gags hundreds of times. And it still brings a tear in that, that last third because of why this film works is all the right combination. The right combination of cast, Steve Martin and John Candy. The, the joy that John Hughes brought to, to all of his films, that heart, that knowing how to take a, a very small plot and be able to reap the best out of it. It had impeccable chemistry between the two of them, between uh, Martin and Candy. And the, the depth of, of, of humour uh, and emotion is just absolutely spot on. I've lived planes, trains and automobiles on more than one <laughs> occasion. And every time I've been in that situation, it, it just reminds me of this film. There are, there are little bits of it that just make me make me smile. I'm, I'm a sucker for a buddy movie. I'm a sucker for a road movie. And with those characters and with these actors, it's it's exactly why it works. I, I can't express it enough. It's just a it's just a bittersweet, lovely, lovely film. Over to you. Sorry. <laughs> now you you said that like it's one of the films that when you first see it, you like you fall in love with it. I didn't. Oh really? When I first wow. saw this, I I completely undervalued it. We were talking a few weeks ago as part of MTOS about like films throughout your lives. And one of the questions was, what was the first 15 rated film that you remember seeing? And I mistakenly put something else. But when I look at the release date of this for the UK, it would have been this because I saw this on my 15th birthday. It had come out three weeks before my 15th birthday. And so this was my birthday treat to go and see it because I was a huge fan of Steve Martin. I loved everything that he did. I'd rented out so much of his earlier stuff and was obsessing about it. So I went to, to this expecting another Steve Martin film. And I do like I did like Breakfast Club and I did like Ferris Bueller. So this was going to be perfect. Steve Martin in a film from the same guy who gave us those films. But it didn't impact on me. And I don't know why. That's Steve Martin was great in it. But I wasn't sold on John Candy. And the film seemed to drag a little. Maybe I just wasn't quite of the right frame of mind. Because when, about 10 years later, it took me about 10 years to get give it another shot. And I revisited it in my 20s and felt completely different. It wasn't okay. long. It was paced beautifully. And at that point, I realized the revelation that John Candy actually was. His Del Griffith character has more depth than what that surface level initial, initial viewing showed me. That even in the earlier scenes, you can see the sadness bubbling under the surface as he's like being pleasant, happy, and like, this is who I am. You can see the sadness because Candy was one of those actors who could say one thing whilst his eyes told you something completely yes. different. And he uses it beautifully throughout this to add that, like you said, the genuine heart and emotional depth of the film. It's all to do with Del Griffith. Yeah, I mean, he's the heart of the, of, of the film and you're absolutely right. And, and it's the one thing about good comedy because good comedy hides great pathos. And Candy could deliver that. And it was interesting because, uh, like you, I've always, always enjoyed the Steve Martin zany comedies of, of, of old and kind of missed that Steve Martin. You know, the, the man with two brains, Steve Martin, the jerk, Steve Martin. And in here, in this particular film, he's the straight man for a lot of yeah. it. He's the uh, he's the, the Grinch. He's the the one who has a, a, a bigger journey to go on than than. Um, than Candy's character, but I, and it, and it's one of those films that in in anybody else's hands, without that casting, it would just be a run of cliches. But those cliches yeah. just work perfectly with with the chemistry of these two guys, uh, and even when it becomes it becomes ridiculous at parts, and 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 I and those are the moments that that I absolutely <laughs> absolutely enjoy and, and 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 cherish that cliche bound stories when it's played for laughter and we played with so much heart with absolutely beautifully rounded characters it's just 
capable of of generating um generating the perfect uh, perfect film for me it's something that john hughes was so great at he could make a film that on the surface is a comedy and sometimes with the wild and surreal moments such as the passing between two trucks moments yes uh, when, <laughs> which as soon as you get john candy dressed as the devil la- laughing is like ha, 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 ha. that's it i crease but at the core of the film is an exploration of human emotions and drama yeah the two leads are immensely likable and they play against each other to perfection. To think that Hughes originally wanted Tom Hanks as Neil and John Travolta as Dell. I could see Hanks. I could see Hanks. Travolta. I can't see Travolta. I mean, Hanks was tied up with Big, so couldn't do the do the role. And the studio balked at Travolta because he was box office poison at the time. But Steve Martin in this, there is elements of that earlier Steve Martin in here. He hams up his flailing arms and frustration shtick, uh, especially when it comes to the ranting at the car rental. Yes. Um, agent. And Candy is the lovable annoyance who only wants to be liked but keeps making mistakes. But the dialogue is where the real magic of this lies. From the sheer comedy of Where's Your Other Hand? Or Larry Bird doesn't do as much ball handling in one night as you do in an hour. <laughs> to the anger rant at the aforementioned car rental agent. To Dell's and the real article speech, which that is complete emotion yeah. in one one minute speech. It's an it's everything sizzles and rewatching the film. And this is a film that I now rewatch frequently. Each time I pick up on other minor details in the dialogue. Interestingly, the use of the F word in the car rental scene 18 times in one minute is the only reason that it got a higher R rating by the MPAA. Really? It would have scored a PG 13 otherwise. In the UK, like I've said before, it was rated 15, probably for the same reason, because that's a lot of Fs. <laughs> Over the years, I, I used to think that like things like Weird Science and Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller were the pinnacle of Hughes. But this has become my favourite John Hughes film, just as it was apparently John Candy's and Steve Martin's favourite films of their careers. And whilst it's a Thanksgiving film in the US, which is why we're speaking about it this week, it always resonates with the UK audience as a Christmas film yes. because it has all those right feelings about Christmas. It's about the coming together. It's about the accepting of other people's personalities that might grate on you because you don't know what's bubbling beneath the surface in that person. And it's about looking past the surface level of people to the depth within and appreciating all of humanity at, at the same time. If you if you remember when we talked about this before starting, I, I had to correct myself to say, oh, this wasn't a, a, a Christmas mm. film. But you're, you're right. I never thought about it in, in, in those terms that it that it does feel like a Christmas film. It feels like a, a great holiday film uh, yeah. and, and kind of the importance of Thanksgiving in the States is to some extent uh, slightly bigger than Christmas for a lot of people in, in the US, um, a, a time for family in the same way that Christmas is. But but everything you say is right. It's it's beautifully cast uh, between the two. Such such great on-screen chemistry. The pacing's absolutely spot on. The the dialogue's funny. The, the, the asides are funny. And, and ultimately... The thing that John Hughes did so remarkably well was to make the small in his storylines feel big. He did the same with with Home Alone. No, it's not my favourite John Hughes movie, but he he just knows how to tap into sentimentality without it feeling mawkish at any time. Yeah. If you've not had a chance to see Planes, Trains and Automobiles, if you've not had a chance to live it, give that a go. But if you've not had a chance to see it, <laughs> try and find it on your nearest streaming platform or you know even pick up the blu-ray or dvd because after you've watched it once you'll you'll watch it again andy do you know where we can find this film um it's not available for free on any streamers at the moment but you can pick it up for there is some good deals on buying the hd version streaming for about under five pounds or you can easily pick it up on blu-ray and dvd over at all the usual retailers just tell them lee and andy sent you if like me you have watched you watched it and you weren't that enamoured. Give it another shot because, like I said, I wasn't enamoured with it until I revisited it and started to see the layers within it. It's a cracking film and definitely, definitely one to keep revisiting. There is a remake in the pipeline. Oh, is this the Will, Will Smith, Smith thing that they've been Will talking Smith about? Will Smith and Kevin Hart. I don't know. I mean, one of the things that you said is that, like, that the film is dated by the fact that mobile phones would have got them out of this situation. So it's going to be interesting to see how they're going to deal with technology, the mobile phone <laughs> yeah. issue. Yeah, the advances of technology in this day and age. I, I'm not, I don't think it needs remaking because no. it does hold up so well, but we're never completely opposed to a remake, except when Kevin Hart's involved. Oh, okay. 
<laughs> rant over. So that's this week's deep dive, and we'll be back with another one next week. But as ever, Andy has taken the time to one side to watch as much as it's humanly possible within a short space of time to offer you the reviews. I've got a very, very quick review, Andy, for a film that I saw ages and ages back, and um, it's now out this this week. Uh, and it's a film called Bruised, and it's directed by Halle Berry and stars Halle Berry. It's landed after ages in the cinema, and I think it's got a, a Netflix re- release in the next couple of weeks. It's an interesting little film, wonderfully directed. She plays a, a woman who's made some terrible choices in her life and who has been previously uh, a, a UFC boxer. She's great in it. It's absolutely great, and she she deals with some tackling and challenging aspects to the storyline. Her directorial debut is solid and proves that she can shoot a picture unfortunately for all the good stuff in it the challenging making it a female lead it just feels like it follows every cliche of every sports movie that you have ever seen Uh, and it feels as though there's a more interesting film in there than the film we got and apparently when this was shown at the toronto film festival the version that that came out was still a work print um, and so it, it feels like it's been edited and edited into a into a form that would make it releasable. And because of that, mm. it just ticks the boxes on all the sports cliches, Rocky, everything else, Warrior. Uh, and there's a much more interesting film inside of this, desperate to get out. But it's well worth seeing alone for Halle Berry's excellent performance, miles away from playing Catwoman. I'll be interested to see it just to sit because Halle Berry's fallen off the radar so mm. much in the past like decade and a half, basically since Catwoman. That basically uh, pushed her into the background. Yeah, did she do Bond before Catwoman? I was just, as I was saying that, I was trying to figure it out. Did, did Bond come after Catwoman or before? Because cause she was going to do the, the Jinx character as, a, as an offshoot at one point. That was, that was planned. She's a great, great presence in movies. Yeah, uh, uh, she's, she's kind of like been so... I'd say she's been missed because she was also on a promising rise around the time of um, Catwoman because she got award nominations for Monsters Ball, for example. Yeah, terrific in that. So a, a great actress that I'll, I'll be watching this just to see what she can do behind the camera as well as in front of the camera. It's a shame that you're saying that it's a bit, it's just too formulaic, but maybe a bit of formula is what she kind of needs to just get herself settled back in. Yeah, it feels like those choices were made by a studio as opposed to, to the film that was that was shot. Uh, yeah. I mean, clearly they, they shot a script, but um, it, it just goes back on to things like Girl Fight sprang to mind, Million Dollar Baby, uh, Rocky. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think when they they made Rocky, they basically created the, set, set the, the template, template. For, for the sports movie. So yeah. uh, what else do you have after I've thrown that one in and thrown a curveball in? So let's start with um, a bit of nostalgia chasing, and that is Ghostbusters Afterlife. Are you troubled by strange noises in the middle of the night? You experience feelings of dread in your basement or attic? Have you or any of your family ever seen a spook, spectre, or ghost? Raise a call. I'm calling about what happened in New York. Ghostbusters Afterlife. So Callie, played by Carrie Coon, is a woman estranged from her father and discovers that she's a sole inheritor to his estate, coming just as she's being evicted from her city apartment. She moves with her two children, Trevor, played by Finn Wolfhard, and Phoebe, played by McKenna Grace, finding a beat-up farmhouse which holds a lot of secrets. One being that her father was one of the original Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters Afterlife is a nostalgia-packed sequel to the first two films, with most focus on the elements of the first film. Now, whilst I usually argue that films that rely on nostalgia weaken and cheapen a film, hello Jurassic World, I'm looking right at you, here the nostalgic elements, heavy as they are at times, are important to imbue the whole film with an emotional core. The story focuses on Egon's family and is made stronger by making it so familiar, whilst also playing with the formula and expectations somewhat. But let's make this clear. This is a film for the fans, and anyone who hasn't seen the original film or never enjoyed the original film will find very little to offer here. It practically demands that you already know the story of the first film. But if you are a fan, then that fondness and love for the original will make this a heartfelt, teary tribute to all your love of Ghostbusters. 
A third film with the original gang has been considered for decades, but never got off the ground, usually because Murray couldn't see a reason for the return and Akros and Remus wouldn't make it without him. Elements of proposed ideas made their way into offshoots, such as the much-lauded video game, but it was after the sad demise of Harold Remus that the reason was found that Murray saw potential with. And with Jason Reitman, son of original director Ivan Reitman, on board, it felt like the right approach and time. But, importantly, the original cast are not the stars here. Even though their presence adds to the film for fans, by the time they appear, you will have already fallen in love with the new additions. Paul Rudd is a science teacher with an obsession for the Ghostbusters, lending his usual charm to the screen in that Paul Rudd manner. Finn Wolfhard is the mid-teenage Trevor who finds the Ecto-1 and begins repairing it, whilst also getting up to trouble with other teens of his age group. Carrie Coon plays the single mother role well. Her years are feeling like her father abandoned her, having impacted on all her relationships since. But the true star of this film is McKenna Grace as Phoebe, the granddaughter of Egon Spengler, who has certainly inherited his love of science, tinkering and social awkwardness. She is the central character, and along with her classmate podcast played by Logan Kim, begins the digging into the secrets of her family, aided somewhat by a supernatural presence. Ghostbusters Afterlife was an emotional journey with subtle laughs, genuine scares and marvellous effects. It serves perfectly as a final farewell for the original crew while setting up potential for future adventures. It was an absolute delight from start to finish. I, lo- I absolutely loved it. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased to hear that you loved it, Andy, because I've heard some mixed reviews. I, I fancy it. I think he's a, a, a great director. And from everything I've read about it, it feels more like one of his usual films that indie quality than big big blockbuster but i'll be interested to see how this lands at the box office in the next couple of weeks because it has been circling for so so long is it going to uh, is it going to make an impression or have people moved on from it my next review is spencer your right highness have to do things you hate. They know everything. They don't. Spencer, only in cinemas. The marriage between Charles and Diana has long since grown cold, with rumours of affairs and divorce abound. However, the Christmas festivities at the Queen's estate are commencing, with eating, drinking, hunting and shooting, and some level of decorum must be maintained. But Diana is on the verge of a breakdown and feels she is smothered by the world of royalty. Kristen Stewart is getting a lot of praise for her portrayal of Diana in this film, and deservedly so. Close to breaking point and suspicious that the family wants her out of the picture, she's unnerved, cautious, but also showing a rebellious streak as she prepares to break free from the shackles. Her imagination takes over as she compares herself to Anne Boleyn, worried the history would repeat itself and remove her so another can take her place. The mental strain on Diana is visible in every moment Stuart presents. Around her, the rest of the cast are all great names. Sean Harris, Timothy Spall, Jack Farthing, Stella Gone, Sally Hawkins, but sadly most feel underused or entirely flat. Whether this was a deliberate choice by director Pablo Lorraine to emphasise how Diana saw the world around her, everything is fake and artificial, is unknown, but it's undermined the film greatly and led to some characters seeming pointless additions. Spall's character, for example, offers so little that you wonder if there's chunks edited out on the cutting room floor, which would have given a purpose for his inclusion. Only Sally Hawkins, as minor as her part is, stands out as Diana's dresser and close confidant. Spencer looks great and focuses on an interesting part of royal history, but feels like it shies away from really telling the tale it wants to. Stuart holds it together and certainly engages, but the end affair feels somewhat average and immediately forgettable. I, I to be honest, Andy, I, I, I have no interest in in this film at all, and I, I, it's good to hear that her performance is as outstanding as I was led to believe. And it, it's one of those roles that looks like a, tr- a full transformation where somebody embodies that person rather than it's just just a, a pure performance. But nah, it's it, nothing about this is for me in any stretch of the imagination. And then finally, we've got Tick, Tick, Boom, which after its short cinema release has now landed on Netflix. Lately, I've been hearing this sound. Like a time bomb. Hey, boy genius. The flame gets closer and closer. 
Do you know how many Jonathan Larsons there are? One. Until all at once, everything explodes. Based on the autobiographical musical by Jonathan Larson, this is the story of an aspiring composer in New York City who, as he approaches 30, starts to wonder if he chose the wrong career. Directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda, the film follows Larson, played by Andrew Garfield, as he performs his monologue Tick, Tick, Boom before an audience at the New York Theatre Workshop. The performance sees him recite the tale of how he began to question his life choices as he approached 30 and the impact on his personal relationships that his decisions made. The presentation of the film switches from the stage-based monologue moments to grounded flashbacks is slick, and Miranda, directing for the first time, manages to make the feature feel alive as a result. The songs are, as expected, greatly handled, some seeping into the real-life moments, others represented as part of the stage performance, but always captivating. And it's Garfield who holds the film. He's a veritable tour de force throughout, conveying a range of emotions as the pressures of trying to write a hit musical get on top of him, distancing him from others. But whilst the darker emotional aspects are present, there's a vibrant energy emanating from Garfield at the same time, which means that whilst we empathise with him, we never find ourselves dragged down by him. The cast around lend able support, with Robin de Jesus as Michael, Larson's closest friend, standing out and having the greatest impact on Larson's journey. Overall, this is a musical which fans of musicals can love, but those normally put off by musicals can hopefully embrace too, as it doesn't force the songs into the narrative unnecessarily, and the film plays as a drama with musical elements. Well worth checking out. I am looking forward to this. Garfield's a, a, a tour de force every time he's on screen. Huge fan of Lin-Manuel Miranda, and as a directorial debut, even though it does sound a little bit flawed, I'm, I'm, I'm in. I'm, I'm definitely in for this. I think it'll be a, a clearly be a, a Netflix viewing for me. Uh, Andy, yeah. what's coming out over the next week? So at cinemas this next week, we've got Encanto, the latest Disney animation to grace our screens. Pirates, House of Gucci, which is one we've got our eye on. Yeah. And A Boy Called Christmas for those people feeling festive. Um, over on streaming, A Boy Called Christmas also lands on Sky Movies and now TV this weekend. There's the red flag we were looking for. You know what? You know what three words it is? A Sky Original. And um, on Netflix, for those who didn't see Greta Gerwig's Little Women, it lands on Netflix this week. Very good film. Over on Amazon, Kristen Bell stars in Queen Pins, which is a caper about housewives who create a $40 million coupon scam. But my focus is going to be on Disney Plus this week because Hawkeye has started and Beatles Get Back is also here. And we'll be talking about both of those next week and we'll be doing our regular follow on of Hawkeye. And that, folks, is about it for this week. But before we go, and we do this every single week, because why? We enjoy it. It's our neat thing. Andy, what is your neat thing for this week? I was expecting my neat thing for this week to be the return of Discovery, but we had a rant about that earlier on, so we're not going to say that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's really thrown you out. And I could tell even last week you were uh, you were interested in it and couldn't wait for it. Yeah, it's a huge, huge blow. Sounds sad, I mean, but that's me. I'm a Trek nerd. Um, but instead, I'm going to go to some comic books and a graphic novel collection, and it's over to my favourite supplier of um, good gra- graphic novels at a discount price. Humble Bundle, who are doing a Lone Wolf and Cub collection. Just over £18 gets you 20 digital graphic no, graphic novels from the series and spin-offs and other stories by the creator of Lone Wolf and Cub, Kazuo Koiki. The epic story of a swordsman and his son from Dark Horse is considered one of the most influential works of graphic fiction ever made. And the bundle, which you can get on humblebundle.com at the moment, holds the run of the series plus other works by the creator, such as Lady Snowblood and Crying Freeman. It's essential reading for anyone who loves their comic books. Absolutely brilliant. And people might have like might not be aware of Lone Wolf and Cub, but will have heard when Logan came out that, oh, it's very inspired by Lone Wolf and Cub. When you read it, you will see where the inspiration was drawing from. Cracking, cracking graphic novel, just over 18 quid. Get on that. Well, mine too this week is a graphic novel. Uh, it was a birthday gift from a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Bowie, Stardust, Rayguns, and Moon Age Daydreams. Brought to you by Steve Horton and the fantastic uh, Mike Holdred, who is one of my favourite, favourite illustrators and is one of those comic artists who can step into 
kind of mainstream-ish comics uh, with uh, his take on ecstatics uh, for Marvel and then do something like Eye Zombie and then do something that's uh, like Mad Men, which is just weird and wonderful. He's just got a, a, an absolutely unique style and, and that unique style couldn't be a, a better combination for telling the early days of of David Bowie. It's it's just a it's a pure love letter to to Bowie's early years, and it touches on ponders what makes him unique, what made him uh, inspirational, and you've got an inspirational artist to tell that story. Absolutely wonderfully, wonderfully crafted and coloured. You you sometimes forget when you talk about comics, you always go to to the artist or you go to the writer. But it's it's the colouring on this as well that just makes every page just just leap in front of you. It's almost a, uh, uh, going to an art gallery. It's that good. It's in, it's an impossible book not to pick up if you're a, a a Bowie fan. It's the perfect combination of the 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 right artist and the right comic artist working together. It's a it's a spectacular looking book. As I say, just beautifully put together. Fantastic, fantastic book. Uh, that's my neat thing, and it's Bowie, Stardust Rayguns, and Moon Age Daydreams by uh, the great Michael Aldred and Steve Horton. And that's it for this week's programme. We'll be back again with a whole new Film File podcast for you next week. Uh, any plans for the next week, Andy? Hopefully not having COVID. Yes, hopefully not having <laughs> COVID. God, I'd try and do this show on my own. It'll never happen. It'll be a repeat show, I'm telling you now. Or, or an hour and a half of me talking about Hawkeye. Although I do have to prepare the questions for the film quiz at the cinema, um, which we've been advertising for the past three weeks and I've still not wrote one question. <laughs> so we'll see you again next week. But let me close this conversation by saying that you are one unique individual. <laughs>